Please open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. We're going to be in the second half of chapter 1, today in the very beginning of chapter 2. This is a study, a series called Faithful, going through the books of First and Second Peter. In this morning's message, I've entitled Breaking Stained Glass. Sounds kind of fun. I thought about an illustration when putting a big stained glass. But breaking stained glass, breaking down some things, some ideas, some perceptions of the Christian faith so that it becomes more accessible to those who don't walk with Jesus. Breaking stained glass. The famous 19th century author G.K. Chesterton said this, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. This sums up in many ways, I think, the message that Peter shares with us in First and Second Peter, that following Jesus is hard and it's worth it. Amen? A couple themes that are woven through these two books is that, one, if we follow after Jesus, suffering is something that we will engage at some point. It's just part of the journey of being a disciple of Jesus. However, in the midst of the suffering that we will endure for following Jesus, we can trust that God is sovereign. That is to say, He remains in control of all things at all times. He remains faithful. And He's called us to a depth of faithfulness. And faithfulness in following after Jesus, as described for us in the Gospel, involves some level of suffering. So Peter, who wrote these books, like many of us, struggled with the idea of righteous suffering. It's something that I'd rather, I would rather it just be, you know, peaches and ice cream falling after Jesus, that you'd wake up every day and things would just be happy, and there wouldn't be any pain, there wouldn't be any adversity, there wouldn't be any trouble. It would just be, hallelujah, I've given my life to Jesus and everything is just fine now. That's not the kind of gospel that Peter or Paul or Jesus, or anyone who walked out the good news that Jesus died for our sins and set us free, that's not the kind of gospel they presented. They presented a gospel filled with righteous suffering. And Peter struggled with that. He struggled when Jesus predicted his death. Because everything was going really well. He says, who do you say that I am? Hey, you're Jesus. You're the Christ. You're the Son of the living God. Hallelujah. Throw a party. Let's all go home. No. The next thing that was, was uttered by Jesus after Peter made his confession was, okay, now the whole playbook is open. Now that you've confessed me as Lord of your life, I'm going to take you to depths that you don't understand yet. And those depths tell us that we will suffer and deal with trials in our faith. Jesus, in fact, said that this journey is going to lead me to death. It was the first time he said it. Can you imagine how the ambiance in the room must have changed? Oh, this is the one that we're following. Peter struggled when Jesus and the disciples encountered the blind man, the guy that was blind since birth. And it was understand in cultural times then that if a kid was blind, it was because his parents sinned. That's why he's suffering. It's because his parents were naughty. They didn't read their Bibles. They didn't go to church. They didn't do whatever it is that good Christians do. They were naughty, and so their son was born blind. Yep, that's how God works. And Jesus is like, no, this is not how God works, Peter. There's a different reason. He says in the Gospels that this man was born blind, Jesus said, so that the power of God may be put on display through his life. Oh, that's 
Another reason for suffering, I suppose, it's not just being naughty. It's that God wants to work and do things in us and through us. What a fantastic way to reimagine suffering, to reimagine trial and hardship, that we're going through this, not because God's sadistic and he does crazy things to us just because, but because he wants to display his power through our lives. Peter struggled when he cut off the ear of the guard in the Garden of Gethsemane when they were taking Jesus and arresting him. And Jesus said, man, that's not how it works. Do what you will with me. I will suffer for the gospel because when we suffer, people pay attention to our faith because we stay committed to it. How are you so committed through so much pain and trial and suffering? Well, it's easy, friend. I know this is not the end. This is not my home. Jesus has prepared a place for me. And if I suffer and it leads you to a grace that sets you free, then bring it. This is the faithfulness God asks of us. So last week we introduced 1 Peter and found in verses 3 through 12 that Jesus is all about trials and smiles. That's what we talked about last week, that the trials, they lead us to smiles. And Peter encourages his church to anchor their hope in something more solid than their present circumstance. So think about whatever you got going on right now. As good as it is, as hard as it is, don't anchor your hope in what is going on right now. Anchor it into the God who sets us free. And that's different for all of us because we're not all in the same place. So some of us might like the circumstance we're in and try to anchor our hope to it. Some might be desperately clinging on minute by minute in the circumstances that God has given to us. And we have to think through that maybe I'm in a position where I need to lean into more living because my circumstances are really difficult. To lean into the living hope of Jesus. Or maybe things are really good for me circumstantially in life and I need to lean more into a death to self that will set other people free. I got it good. Well, good. I'm glad you got it good. Can you spare some time to be with someone who doesn't right now? We have to ask the Lord, where am I in my circumstance, and how can it be used to further the kingdom? Amen? We know in this text, this is our theme for the whole series, that through the death of Jesus, we have a fresh start with God. These are the things Peter's communicating to us. We know who we are. Through his resurrection, we are adopted into his family. So now we know where we belong. And through his ascension and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, we can live our lives in the face of opposition with an unmatched confidence. We know what's in store. We know what's coming. In this kind of hope, this is the kind of hope we anchor our faith into. We anchor our lives, our moments, our thoughts our actions into this kind of hope because it's solid enough to endure all things. Every single thing, this, this is strong enough to anchor into. It will see us through. So Peter, who was he? He was an unqualified fisherman. He was subject to fits of outrage. We know that to be true. He was the act first and think second kind of guy. Uh, he made it known on multiple occasions to Jesus that his plan for Jesus was better than Jesus' plan for Jesus. Peter did that. Uh, Peter was bold in his private confessions of loyalty to Jesus, and yet in public, at the first hint of opposition, this fisherman cut bait and walked away. These are things that Peter did, but he also had moments of brilliance. In the midst of confounding idiocy like I experienced throughout my weeks, he 
had raw brilliance, an ability to call out Christ first. And then when filled with the Holy Spirit, all sorts of things started to happen. When filled with the Holy Spirit, our lives start to change. This is what we see through the life of Peter. This week I got to sit at camp with one of Savannah's friends. We were eating popsicles together. Uh, and she had questions about the difference between water baptism and Holy Spirit baptism. It was just like this. We were just sitting out with a bucket full of lollipops and popsicles and talking about Jesus. This is what's great about camp. Is that you have unstructured time to just sit and play and get launched off the blob and all sorts of things. And then you have time to engage with kids about the real questions they have. So Savannah's friend was like, well, what's, I'm confused. What's the difference between the Holy Spirit baptism and water baptism? We had a chance to sit and talk about it. Maybe if you're in this room and you're not sure yet, come to camp next summer and find out. Just spend some time hanging out with kids eating popsicle and let's talk about the deep things of God and theology over popsicles. All right? Water baptism, I displayed, explained, was just a public and symbolic act where we proclaim, hey, Jesus, this death and resurrection of yours, I want that. So I will symbolically go down with you in the grave and come up and be resurrected into new life. And the water will symbolically wash me clean. And everyone around me will see that I'm doing that. We talked about water baptism. Then we talked about Holy Spirit baptism. And that sounds something like, hey, Jesus, this power made available to me, I want some of that too. So I want to be uh, connected with you in your death and your resurrection, and then I want power to take me out. And that's what Peter did. Peter was baptized. He came up. He was set clean. And then the Holy Spirit came and boldness came. I told this kid over popsicles, boldness will come when we invite the power of the Holy Spirit in us to flow out of us. So that's not just about what I get, it's about what I can give away to other people. Peter, when baptized by the power of the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2, went from a guy that was ducking into alleyways and under tables because little girls were trying to associate him with Jesus, to standing in front of the religious leaders and the teachers of the day and Jews that had gathered from all over, all over the world at Pentecost, to say, here is Jesus, the one you hung on a cross, the one that died for your sins. To him we have, and in him we have eternal life. And thousands of people came to Jesus. His message is, you can do all things. There is strength and confidence found in Jesus, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and the outpouring of his spirit to survive and weather all storms, and it will build our faith. That was his message. First Peter 1, verses 13. We're going to go all the way through to verse 3. I'm going to break this up into chunks and just give us little pieces of what Peter is trying to get us to wrap our minds around here. It says in First Peter 1, 13, therefore, therefore, everything we just talked about, with minds that are alert and sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. This word alert, we have a picture of this. It's kind of a military graphic. Alertness, right? This is instructions for how one who might be in first century Judaism, first century Christianity, going off to war, maybe in the Old Testament too, 
would be alert. It says that they would gird up their loins. So in first century Judaism, those who followed Jesus wore these long robes. They wore these great tunics. And if they were going to go do some hard work or to run unhindered or to go off into a battle, it said that they would gird up their loins. They would prepare themselves to go forward. Alertness. That's what is meant in this word. Be alert and sober as we follow Christ. As we understand that in any circumstance, we can overcome by the power of Jesus. Be alert and be ready. Gird up your loins, church. It's time to go. Do away with our religious complacency that just flows out from our feet and out from behind us. Gird it up and be ready to go after him. Picture this. This is what Peter's communicating. Therefore, with minds that are alert and sober, set your hope. Where's your hope? On the grace to be brought when Jesus Christ is revealed at his coming. Because we have this new birth into a living hope, which is talked about in the first part of Peter chapter 1. We must train our minds to think differently. Romans 12 would say, be transformed by the renewing of your minds. It's interesting what science brings to us. I love when science comes out with new stuff because it only further affirms the work of a creative God in our world. It only further confirms it. For thousands of years, we didn't really understand the complexities behind renewing your mind. Now, through neuroscience, we know all about neuroplasticity in the brain. Neuroplasticity means that our brains, the organ that exists in our head, can change. The geometry, the geography of our brain in our head changes when neural pathways are changed. Neural pathways are the pathways like a river through the dirt that send messages when chemicals like dopamine and serotonin travel from one part of the brain to the other. And we develop these patterns, and they're not always grid patterns. They need to be patterns renewed. And so as we renew our mind, as we change the way that we think, as we change the things that we believe, Neuroscience now takes scans of the brain and says, if you change these neural pathways, it'll cut a new river. It'll cut a new path that will change your behaviors, that will lead you away from things that you used to do, like gambling too much or cussing too much or looking at things we shouldn't look at too much or eating too much. The neural pathways in our brains are changed. This is science. It, you can't deny it. But you can't deny the word of God behind it either. That our minds are changed. We must renew our minds. Gird up our loins. Develop new neural pathways. We've learned that we can retrain our brains and better behavior follows. But it's because there's a God that loved us first. Amen? So set your hope. This is what it says in the text. Set your hope on the grace to be brought. When the grace of Jesus Christ is revealed. This takes practice, by the way. We don't just carve a new path overnight. It's something that we do over time. And guess what? We're going to fall short as we learn. We're going to fall short as we change. In addiction recovery circles where I've spent a lot of time, there's something like a relapse and then there's something like a slip-up. Slip-ups happen. We're going to go back to old behaviors every once in a while. But the reason why it isn't a relapse is because we catch it. We catch what we're doing and we change our ways and we think and we act a new way. This takes practice to set our hope on Christ. 
it's still really easy to get up and set our hope or lack thereof on the circumstances right in front of us. We're going to go out this week geared up to do this. We might bat 300. We might three out of 10 times. We might look at our circumstance and say, oh, and just fall into that pit. But maybe three out of the 10 times we'll say, nope, that's just a moment. I'm living for something beyond that. It takes training. And the more we see God faithful in it, the more we'll set our hope to know that he's the one who sets us free. Already this morning, I was talking to a gentleman in this church who said that he might not be able to stay for the whole service today because of something going on in his life that was upsetting, that was troublesome. It was circumstances that were dire. And because he had a mindset on hope, and I had a mindset on hope, the two of us together worked together and worked it out. We said, let's pray right now that God will change those circumstances. In the midst of our prayer, he gets a text ping in his pocket, and the circumstance that was troubling had been made right in a two-minute prayer. It had been made right. Set the hope on things to come. That young man, Tyler, sitting in a car in Muckleteo Beach Park the other night had a chance to set his hope because a hope bearer came and sat with him. Set our minds. This takes practice. Verse 14, as obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. Remember those days when we lived in ignorance? Zach, I'm have you go back to that bus picture. When the kids all showed up at camp this last week, all the leaders were to get on the buses as quickly as possible and just high-five the kids and welcome them to camp and let them know that we were glad that they were there. And it took me back 27 years to when a youth pastor was jumping on a bus and high-fiving me and welcoming me to camp. And I watched kids come down off the bus and down the stairs, and it took me back 25 years, 21 years, 21 years actually to the moment when I realized that I could no longer live in my ignorant ways. I was at a camp in Clarkston, Washington, knew Jesus, saved by Jesus, definitely not following Jesus. That's a thing. There's that place, and we have to be really, really careful with people in that place, not to get too religious on them, because God works things out over time. I'm working with a young man right now. All I want is his, he just came to Jesus. All I want is his behavior to change. And the Lord's like, settle down, bro. Yeah, but he's, yeah, but he's, yeah, but you. Oh, yeah. Just let the Lord work that process out. For me, it was five years from when I gave my life to Jesus, acknowledged him as my Savior, to when I committed my life to following him as my king. And I was walking down the steps of the bus, and the Lord said, these ways of ignorance you can live in no longer. So I came home and I started making some real changes. Camp reminded me of that. It's happening in the lives of kids again this week as they get off the buses. It reminded me that I couldn't go back to the old neural pathways. I couldn't go back to the way that I used to think. And I knew something that I wish I didn't know, sort of, but kind of in my spirit glad I did. I knew now that there was no plausible deniability left in me. I could not go before the kingdom of heaven, the throne of Jesus, and say, God, I didn't know, because I knew. Pastor Jim Hayford at Eastside Foursquare Church for years would say, you can continue to live in sin, but you're not going to love it anymore. That's the transformation that takes place. Yeah, you can go sin, you can go back to your old ways, but guess what? There's no fun in it left. The Holy Spirit's going to be on you about that, lovingly convicting you to say, remember, new neuropathways, 
new choices do no longer conform to the evil desires we had when we lived in ignorance. So what must we do instead if we can't live in ignorance anymore? Verse 15. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. So be holy. That's it. That's it. It says it. It says it's written. Well, where is it written? It was written originally by Moses in the book of Leviticus way back in the Old Testament. The book of Leviticus records Moses' instructions to the people about how to live light, light, how to live rightly in the presence of God. That's the whole point of Leviticus. Know that, it makes it an easier text to swallow. But there were instructions. This is how you live in the presence of God. That's all it is. This is how you live in the presence of God and in the community that surrounds his presence. So how do you live with him, and how do you live with your brothers and sisters? That's the book of Leviticus. This is really interesting. As the Israelites journeyed between Egypt where the Lord had delivered them from, right? They were delivered from sin and bondage and slavery in Egypt all the way to the promised land. That's where God was leading them to a place of hope. In that process, in the going from Egypt to the promised land, the presence of God was there. It rested within the tabernacle. Here's a picture of the tabernacle right here. All right? So... Right here is the Ark of the Covenant. That's the, the holiest of holy places where God resided. And then they had this like mobile church. So be encouraged, mobile church. The first church was a mobile church. Okay, Set this thing up. Tear this thing down. We're going to propose that we all move around the outside in tents. As it's, no, just kidding. We're not going to do that. <laughs> the mobile church of God. Moses was a church planner. Hmm. Really interesting. How to live rightly as God takes us on a journey. Be holy. How to be holy as God takes us on a journey. God's mobile home, so to speak, is where God lived on earth before he lived in the presence of Jesus, in the person of Jesus, before he lived in us at the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. This is where God lived. Be holy. So what is holiness? When I think about holiness, I think about a stained glass word, a really churchy world that sounds dated and unobtainable and boring. Be holy. Because the Lord your God is holy. How are you going to reach a generation of people talking like that? Yes, holiness is important. But it's not outdated. It's not unobtainable. It's not boring. Alan Hirsch wrote a book called Read Jesus about discovering the Jesus of the Gospels, the wild Messiah who leads his missional church in the world. Read Jesus. In this book, he argues that oftentimes we take our favorite characteristic of Jesus and then just pour it out over all the other characteristics of Jesus so that we can't see the rest of what's there. We only see what we like about who Jesus is, right? So there's the all-grace Jesus that we probably didn't even need him to die on a cross for us. There was so much grace. There's the all-truth Jesus that hasn't seen a cross or Jesus hanging on it ever in their lives. And it drives people away because we're not good enough. We can never be good enough. There's the all-grace Jesus, the all-truth Jesus. There's the all-God Jesus, and then the all-man Jesus. That's really about 
social justice and justification. God, he's just really about sharing sandwiches with people and fish and loaves and blankets and search and rescue. Let's just go out and take care of people on the streets. Let's not talk to him about God because that's offensive. No, that's all human Jesus. All deity Jesus doesn't doesn't go on the streets because the people out there are sinful and dirty. Right? There's a there's a place in the middle, right? There's a full expression of Jesus. There's the revolutionary Jesus, like take the world by storm, militant Jesus. That's what Peter wanted. And then there's even the spooky Jesus. We got a picture of spooky Jesus. You seen him? Spooky Jesus portrays Jesus as otherworldly. Like he's oh, he's out there somewhere. A God, this is important, Alan Hurst says, this is a God that can be worshipped but not followed. Because who can identify with that? Right? Holiness. What is holiness? What's the picture we're looking for? Holiness shows up in the Old Testament, shows up in the New Testament. When Peter says, be holy as I am holy, he's reverting back to the holiness of the Old Testament in Leviticus 19, 44 and 45, where it said it originally. Be holy as you travel, church, from the place of slavery to the place of new life and new promise. Learn how to live with me there in holiness. The word in the Hebrew is kadosh. It means to be set apart. The word in the Greek in the New Testament is hagios, to be reverent, to be set apart and be reverent. Peter is calling this brand new family, right? Mostly Gentiles he's talking to. So he's filling them in on the history of Israel and his people. He's calling the new church to the same kind of radical faith but in a brand new context. This holiness that Peter talks about is still about how to live our lives in light of God's proximity to us. Because God is close, here's how you live. What's radically new, again, is that the proximity has changed. The God out there in the tabernacle. God with us in Jesus. God in us by the power of the Holy Spirit at the day of Pentecost. That's when Peter changed. That's when boldness came. It's the same Holy Spirit who met my son at camp this week and when he said, fill me with your Holy Spirit, it was like all the burdens of his life lifted. Not went away, but it was just Jesus was carrying him instead of my son. Same Holy Spirit at work in us today. As new believers in Jesus, we're on a journey that parallels Israel's journey from Egypt to the Promised Land. I'm going to put something up here. I want us to think through this. It's kind of cool what Peter's talking about. Can I get that next slide, Zach? Right. So check this out. While God was leading Israel under the leadership of Moses towards the future hope of the promised land, the new family of God finds itself under the leadership of the Holy Spirit, moving towards the future hope of an inheritance kept in heaven for us. God's doing the same thing in a new way. So when Peter talks about being holy, he's not disregarding the Holy Spirit at work in the Old Testament. He's just saying God's doing it closer to us and in us and through us. So be holy because I am holy. He's not any less holy. God is just as just, just as sovereign, and just as grace-filled as he always has been. And it's really cool when we see it spread over the course of thousands of years because we know that this isn't just a, an upstart. It's not some newfangled idea, this grace of Jesus. It has been consistent. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
So be holy, just not stuffy or dusty or outdated or spooky, right? To be holy is to be people of optimal frustration. Anyone ever heard that term, optimal frustration, before? This is the exact amount of frustration that keeps people from giving up on two sides of an issue, right? If things are too easy, if things are too easy, we give up on them because we're bored, right? If I had you recite the alphabet over and over until you got it right, you wouldn't even try because it's just too easy. But if I told you to quote the Bible in Hebrew, that might be too hard, right? Optimal frustration is finding the exact amount of frustration that will keep people challenged and engaged to complete something that transforms them because it was just hard enough. So what does it mean for us to be people of optimal frustration in regards to holiness? Don't be so holy that you go to a group of people that have never heard about Jesus before and quote the Bible to them in Greek and Hebrew. right? Or say, I can't be near you because you're smoking a cigarette or... You're at the bar, or I just can't be, this is just sin, it's just, right? Don't be that holy. Don't walk around with your head in the clouds so that your feet can't touch the earth. On the other end, don't just be like, you know, whatever, it's fine, it's fine. Following Jesus is easy. All you got to do is say that you believe, and then he doesn't ask you to change anything. So we don't want, it's got to have something in it. People want to be different. So be the kind of holy that goes into places like Jesus did, doing things like Jesus did, drawing and compelling people to the grace that set them free. It was hard work, Peter would find out. But be that kind of holy. And to be a people that understand our value. People who recall once again the condition in which we were found. I was found in a place. A dark place and God set me free. Remember that because there's other people in that darkness. Remember our value and how value is assessed. Don't forget this in terms of holiness. We're holy because of him. Because we're owned by him. Value is assessed by who owns it and how much they're willing to pay for it. Well, if I'm owned by God and he paid with his son, then I must be holy. Right? Not because anything I did. It's because of who he made me. Out of that... Moving on to verse 17. Just let this wash over you because there's not time to unpack all of this. But because of those things, since you call on a father who judges each each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners with reverent fear. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you by your ancestors, but you were redeemed with the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourself by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass and their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of the Lord endures forever. Therefore, because of all of this, everything that we've talked about, the perfect place of optimal frustration of holiness in our lives because he set us free on a purpose and we know that circumstances do not dictate our hope 
Because of all that, rid yourselves of all kinds of malice and all deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and slander of every kind. Like newborn babies crave pure spiritual milk, so that by it you might grow up in your salvation, now that you have tasted that the Lord is good. I'm going to have Chris come up who's going to do our benediction. Going back, going back, G.K. Chesterton, Christianity has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and not tried. Peter tried it. He tried it on for size. And then thousands of years later, people are still being encouraged by his life in South Everett. All right? So our faithful response to God is to try something difficult. It's to do hard things. It's to set our hope on the promise of eternal life. It's to be holy. It's to live out our faith and reverent fear of the God who is all grace and all truth. And then finally, to love one another. We do these things, right? We do these things, and God sets us free. 1 Thessalonians 3, verse 12 and 13. May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. Have a good rest of your day. You've been listening to a podcast from South Everett Foursquare Church. For more information about us, please visit us online at www.southeverett.org.